CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Breaking news overnight, Alabama lawmakers passing what could become the most restrictive abortion law in the country. Governor Brian Kemp signed the measure banning abortions after a fetal heartbeat Today, Missouri joined states looking to restrict access to abortions and get a state law to the Supreme Court to challenge and overturn Roe v. Wade. Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia, Iowa, Alabama, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Utah all have recently passed laws that in various ways restrict when a woman can have an abortion. In addition to being a political flashpoint, HB 481 signed into law as the Life Act by Governor Brian Kemp. It is one of a flurry of laws recently passed by states to restrict abortion rights. While the intent is clear, confusion, misstatements, and outright falsehoods about when these laws take effect, what and who can be prosecuted and by whom have been spreading online and in social media platforms. Well, we're leaving the politics aside today as we attempt to get some clarity on the legal questions of what is known as fetal heartbeat laws and other restrictive bills recently passed in other states around the country. Amy Steigerwald is a political science professor at Georgia State University, and she joins me now to talk about this confusing and controversial law. Amy, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And GPB reporter Stephen Fowler, he's been covering HB 41 since it was introduced in the General Assembly is also with us. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. The common narrative here is that these laws are designed to challenge Roe v. Wade. This is the 1973 case guaranteeing a woman's right to privacy to have an abortion under the 14th Amendment. But it's really a 1992 case, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, that may be more likely challenged. Under Casey, individual states can regulate abortion at the point of fetal viability, or when a fetus can live outside the mother's womb. Stephen, I'm going to start with you and go down to the state level. How does the language of Georgia's HB 481, now law, change the definition of criminal abortion in Georgia? Well, Virginia, in the state law, we have it's OCGA 16-12-140, criminal abortion. There is in the law, a person commits the offense of criminal abortion when, in violation of section 16-12-141, he or she administers any medicine, drugs, or other substance, whatever, to any woman, or when he or she uses any instrument or other means, whatever, upon any woman with the intent to produce a miscarriage or abortion. Okay, so that is the person who is providing the means for the abortion. It's not the woman herself. That is what both the written law and the case law has said. There's a case, Hillman versus State, where the courts found that a woman who has an abortion cannot be charged for the act, merely the doctor or the provider or the third party person. So what this law does is it changes that code section 1612-141 of what the violation is of criminal abortion. So we have one piece of the state law that says this is the crime, and then the next section is here's how you violate the crime or here's how you commit the crime. So that's what's tweaked in the LIFE Act that has been signed into law. And it says that abortion uh, means the act of using, prescribing, or administering any instrument uh, with the purpose to terminate a pregnancy, um, but there are exceptions. Uh, it's not an abortion if it's removing a dead unborn child caused by spontaneous abortion or removing an ectopic pregnancy. So what the law does here is it explains 
what a criminal abortion charge is and how you can be charged with it. Okay, so fact check here. This is something that we've seen reporting. We've seen a lot of stuff circulating online that a woman could be prosecuted for murder for having an abortion. True or false? Complicated. Thought you might say that. We're not entirely sure because, on the one hand, as Stephen noted, the criminal abortion statute is written to apply only to the provider. So that part was not, in fact, actually changed in the law itself that existed pre-HB 481. So that part remains true. Where it becomes complicated has nothing to do with actually what the, the statute and charge of criminal abortion. Where it becomes complicated is that HB 481 had a lot of other provisions in it. One of the most important ones being that way up at the top of the code in 1-2-1, it redefined the word person. Mm -hmm. And it extended that to include a human being with a detectable heartbeat, including an unborn child. By doing that, the concern that has been and the confusion that has been raised and really expressed by um, a number of people, including district attorneys around the state, is whether or not in changing that very first part of the code, that then has ramifications for all the rest of the code. So if, in fact, you define person in this way then that would mean that everywhere coming after in the code that that new definition of person applies. So now we start to talk about other provisions that have nothing to do with that aren't a bit that don't mention the words abortion and instead for example deal with 16-5-1 uh, which is the homicide okay. provision. Let me back up for just a minute and go back to the provider question. You mentioned Stephen Hillman versus State. That was when a woman actually shot herself in the stomach, correct? If I got that right, to try and produce an abortion. So, yes, she shot okay. herself in the gut. Okay, she shot herself in the gut. So a woman who actually takes a drug in order to create an abortion, mm -hmm. is she also liable for that? Or is the pharmacist who actually provided that drug to her? Under the criminal abortion statute? Exactly. Under the criminal abortion statute, it would only be the doctor who prescribed the medication. Okay. And how about under HB 41? 481. That, exactly. And that's where it becomes confusing. And that's where the concern comes in uh, due to two things. So the first is that, um, as Stephen read out, the new definition of abortion under HB 481 gives a much broader definition of abortion that applies to anyone and the this this is the particular part as you mentioned with medication abortion it applies to anyone who quote uses a substance the person who uses a substance is technically the woman so she will use the substance while she is right ingesting. There, there's a, it's a series of two pills that one takes um, if we're talking about a medication abortion and the using of that substance right would be known to right do the abortion. So here's where we get into the differentiation between the law and case law. Mm -hmm. The law is what's passed by the General Assembly, signed by the governor. It's in there for everyone to view and read and do. But then the case law is different people have challenged parts of the law or questioned the application of the law, and the courts have gone in and said, this is what the law is interpreted as. So when we talk about the abortion bill, we talk about what the law says, but ultimately what we will have to find out is 
once this is challenged in court or if it's future challenges, the case law of what judges have to say about the law and how it's applied, whether it's talking about a woman being charged to the personhood aspect and how that affects the other parts of the code. That is Stephen Fowler of GPB. And we also have with us Amy Steigerwald. We're talking about what can and cannot happen under legal prosecution or legal statutes with the new Life Act due to go into effect in January of 2020 in Georgia. Let's talk about that then. Case law. You talked about a woman who actually takes a substance. Now, what if she smokes and drinks? What if she uh, doesn't control her diabetes? What if she eats a poppy seed bagel? Because poppy seeds are known to link to uh, miscarriages. Or she changes cat litter inside of her home. Could she be criminally prosecutable if that produces a miscarriage? Hopefully not. Again, where this all becomes difficult is that, so the definition of abortion does also have the caveat to it. So it's not simply that a woman uses a substance, but that she uses a substance with the knowledge that doing so will likely end in a termination of the pregnancy. So the idea, so in all of the sort of examples that you just gave, right, we would imagine that the woman who is eating the poppy seed bagel is not doing so with the intention, right? A lot of times, I mean, yes, we all eat poppy seed bagels. And so we're not doing so with the intention of doing that as opposed to taking those medications. We don't take them for any purpose other than to result in a medication abortion, right? Those aren't prescribed for anything else. So in that sense, no. Where there becomes concern, though, is less about those exact actions and more about what are the implications for uh, the practice of medicine and also what's going to be reported to the state when a woman has a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Some of the concern that has been uh, raised, particularly by um, doctors, is that an abortion and a miscarriage look the same. Mm -hmm. They physiologically, right, the sort of results of it, right, what is going to present if a woman goes to a hospital, they will look the same. There is no real way to be able to determine whether or not a woman who, for example, goes to the doctor and is in the midst of having a miscarriage, if that is happening spontaneously, right, because the, the, the medical term for a miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion, or if that's happening because she's ingested these medications, have there been cases in American law where a woman is prosecuted for, I, I've read that uh, a woman was prosecuted for not using her seatbelt and a car accident resulted in the termination of the pregnancy. So is that kind of thing conceivable? Yes, there have been a number of cases where women have been uh, either charges have been brought against them in certain times they have been convicted or later uh, the charges have been dropped. But we've seen a number of things like this. We, we've also seen um, not necessarily in the state of Georgia, but in other places where women have miscarried. And then also there's been attempts to sort of investigate about what caused it. We've seen we see this, especially when women miscarry who also have a history of drug and alcohol abuse mm -hmm. as to whether or not right they can now be, for example, uh, charged with feticide due to that drug and alcohol abuse. Does that mean that a doctor will have to report to some state agency or otherwise when a woman miscarries and she could be criminally prosecuted? Well, part of HB 481 and what it modifies is the reporting component for medical providers who 
perform an abortion. So when an abortion happens, when a doctor uh, performs an abortion, they have to report that to the state. There's certain information that they have to report. There's certain information that they don't report. And so that's the mechanism for reporting things to the state for an abortion. It doesn't mention anything about miscarriage or even ectopic pregnancies or other things that are not specifically an intentionally performed uh, abortion from a doctor. What is the distinction between feticide and homicide? That's actually a great question because it shows us how HB 481 is somewhat changing the existing law. The reason that in the state of Georgia we have a separate uh, criminal statute against feticide is because prior to the passage of that law, if an unborn child was to die in the commission, let's say, of a murder or a commission of some other crime, it wasn't recognized as a killing of another person because the not yet born child is not recognized under the law as, in fact, an existing person. But now that personhood establishes its personhood after six weeks of pregnancy, that could happen. Exactly. So under Georgia law, we put into a place um, a separate feticide law. It's actually a relatively recent law um, of where sort of establishing feticide separately from other ones. But it does note in our feticide statute in the state of Georgia that it cannot be applied against a woman. That is not necessarily true in other states because, again, all 50 states are able to write, mm -hmm. plus the territories and uh, D.C. are able to write their own provisions about how they want to define that. I want you both to hold on because there are so many more questions here. Stephen Fowler is with me, GPB reporter. Also, Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University. We are talking about the specifics, the legalities of the new Life Act signed into law in Georgia, and also the specific legal challenges that it is likely to face. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, here with two people who've done a lot of digging into HB 481, which is signed into law as the Life Act in Georgia. Among a number of recent laws passed by states designed to be challenged and ultimately be taken up by the Supreme Court of the United States to overturn legal abortion. Now, the possible real-world applications and probable legal challenges to these laws is what we're talking about today with Amy Steigerwald from Georgia State University and GBB politics reporter Stephen Fowler. And before the break, we talked about how the so-called heartbeat law in Georgia broadly establishes personhood once cardiac rhythm is detected. Specifics are a lot more confusing, and there have been a lot of misinformation circulating. So we're trying to answer some questions we've seen pop up in the social mediaverse and other places. So, Amy, first to you. In the case of non-viable pregnancies, would a woman be legally bound to carry a child to term even if it no longer has a heartbeat? Depending on how the law is written in each state, yes. Okay. There are certain states um, that—so Alabama probably is the most uh, extreme where they pass that uh, from the beginning of pregnancy, uh, abortion is completely banned. Um, they do say that a lethal 
fetal anomaly would allow. That is the one exception for an abortion. Um, but some of the question becomes, what precisely do they mean by lethal? Do they mean, in fact, that the, to not to get overly complicated, but that the fetus has, in fact, already died mm-hmm. inside of the mother? Or do they mean that the uh, once the child is born... It's very unlikely that they would live. More than a couple hours yeah. or even a day. Okay. All right. So how about some of the specifics of this personhood idea? Because I'm very curious about if personhood is established at six weeks, the unborn child of an undocumented immigrant in Georgia, would they be counted as a U.S. citizen? That is an excellent question. And there are at least some uh, legal scholars who have suggested that that is one implication of this. Part of the reason why that's important is that what the law does also stipulate is not just the personhood, but also that the unborn child should be or will be included in state population counts such as the census. Mm -hmm. That would mean that the child should count in those counts, whether or not, because again, remember, the census applies to everyone who is physically located in in the state of Georgia or in the country, regardless of their uh, immigration status. And so that would mean that they would be counted as well as the unborn child. And there's the provision about child support, changing the Mm -hmm. definition of child support. The term child means any unborn child with a detectable human heartbeat as such. Such terms are defined in code section 1-2-1, that personhood section. Well, I'm going back to the sort of location here, right? Because if a woman maybe lives in another state, but she is in six weeks into her pregnancy, she is in Georgia. If she leaves Georgia to go to another state to have an abortion, is she prosecutable in Georgia? The way that the law is written suggests that a local DA is able to request medical records from either hospitals within uh, the DA's jurisdiction or from any hospital as long as the woman is a resident of the jurisdiction. So it would suggest that if the woman moves away, that no. The law would not apply to her. But if she simply goes out of state and then returns to the state and is a legal resident of Georgia, then those uh, records would be able to be requested by the district attorney. If there are cases that do establish the termination of a fetus after six weeks is indeed homicide, if somebody gave a woman a ride to another state to have an abortion, would they be prosecutable as an accomplice to murder? If we determine that right, and that's this only going to be born in what then, case law? Yes. I mean, how does that get determined? Um, well, case law, but the way that case law gets determined is that a district attorney brings a case. Somebody brings charges against someone and they follow it through. They keep the charges, they decide to prosecute, and we see what happened. And then it potentially the law becomes challenged after that. All right. So you spoke to several district attorneys, Stephen, and asked them about whether or not they would prosecute. Obviously, you didn't reach everybody or you didn't get an answer from everybody. But what did you hear? Georgia has 49 district attorneys for 49 different circuits throughout the state. Some of them have multiple counties in them. Some of them, like Fulton or DeKalb County, have their own DA. And I heard back from 18 of the 49 DAs. Most of them that I talked to said that it would be irresponsible to talk about hypotheticals and that if a case came across their desk, they would evaluate the merits of it and whether or not they would choose to prosecute it would be decided on a specific case-by-case basis. Then you had the camp 
of some district attorneys who, like we mentioned earlier, read the law and say that no, the law says that a woman cannot be charged for having an abortion because of the third person perspective of the law of something being performed to or on someone. Then you had a camp of district attorneys who said that the law did say that you could charge women and doctors and that they were not going to prosecute either one of them because they didn't feel that it was right or proper or correct. And then there was one DA who said that women should beware of being charged and that he thought they could be charged. And he did not say that categorically he was going to not prosecute women or doctors for that. So we have a lot of confusion from district attorneys who are the ones that would be filing charges against a provider or a woman or anything for this. So it's a mixed bag. What if they don't prosecute? Is that willfully ignoring the law or can they pick and choose whether or not to prosecute? Well, it's prosecutorial discretion. So a prosecutor, a district attorney does not have to you know, pursue a case for every single violation of the law. Many of them say it depends on the merits of the case. It depends on the situation. And many of them will not categorically say one way or another whether they're going to prosecute doctors or women or any violation of this law. Okay. These are, of course, elected positions. So they're representing constituents. And it seems that those who say that they will prosecute are in heavily Democratic areas so far. So they are more heavily Democratic areas. And I guess one fallout from this, if you will, if the law does take effect and is upheld in the courts, depending on how the district attorneys view the law, the next time they're up for election, they could be voted out depending on their views. Okay. What about in cases where a woman is incarcerated and she is pregnant uh, with a fetus at, you know, at six weeks onward, that child is in prison, in effect, whether or not they have due process of the law. What happens in those cases? There's been at least one legal scholar that I've seen who has proposed that you would run afoul of concerns about a lack of due process being applied to the now incarcerated unborn person. And that because of that kind of broad definition of person that is way up at the top of the Georgia code, that that would be applicable. And I think this is sort of a good example that on the one hand, it sounds a little nuts to say that this should play a role whatsoever, that, you know, women, uh, you know, lots of people are incarcerated who have children. For lots of things and who have children and who are pregnant. And we don't normally think about there being a second entity involved or that that would run afoul of constitutional issues. The concern here is that we also haven't had it before where the code was redefining the who counted as a person and how that person was going to be affected by various things. Because if, in fact, that person is now counted for census purposes, if if that person is now counted for purposes of uh, child support mm -hmm. and things like that, then why wouldn't all of these other things apply? And this is, I think, where some of the confusion comes in. And this is why you haven't immediately seen a lawsuit from the ACLU of Georgia and other groups, because they have to figure out the abortion ban part of the bill is a relatively straightforward uh, thing to challenge, because other states have put these restrictions in place. They've been struck down in other places. That part is pretty straightforward. But this personhood part, you don't have personhood 
laws in other states. You don't have a federal personhood law. So the ramifications of what the personhood provision will do far beyond the abortion restriction is what groups opposed to this bill are researching and frankly what the state is going to have to figure out as well. Here's one example, HOV lanes on the interstate. Mm -hmm. The Department of Transportation says the following vehicles may use HOV lanes. Vehicles with two or more persons, and it says two or more living and not pre-infant. So a pregnant woman now can't ride in the HOV lane, but if a pregnant woman is actually a pregnant woman plus a air quote person, then that may have to be revisited. You have other state departments, education, revenue, other things that have to grapple with what it means to add another person into the mix. And that's why you haven't seen a lawsuit filed yet and why there's a lot of questions surrounding the law. But also, speaking of national level, that personhood provision may be the part of the bill that shoots Georgia up to the Supreme Court's attention and to discuss the larger issue of Roe versus Wade and federal uh, case law around abortions. All right. Great opportunity for a civics lesson here. Quickly, what is the legal journey for a law like this to get to the Supreme Court? So, you know, a number of uh, reproductive rights organizations have said, yes, we are going to file suit. As you said, the ACLU maybe is taking its time because they're trying to figure out the specifics here. But what happens? Where do they file? Who hears it first? Where does it go from there? Because this is a challenge to a federal constitutional right, it will be filed in federal court. So they'll first go to the district court, which are the trial courts. They'll file it to the one here in Georgia. That will most likely end in the law being blocked. The state of Georgia will then appeal the case up to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. We are in the 11th Circuit, also including Florida and Alabama, who similarly has a law that is being challenged uh, as we speak. And then whoever it is that win, that loses in the circuit court has the ability to challenge up to and appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court can choose which, which cases it takes. Why would it take this one? The first thing to note is that the Supreme Court generally chooses not to take most cases. They only take about 100 out of the approximately 10,000 that are appealed every year. Why they might choose to take this one, I think that's going to be dependent upon what all the various courts around the country do. The Supreme Court likes to take cases where there's a dispute over the law. So we need a court in one place to say... Actually, this law is constitutional. This is fine, right? This ban on abortion doesn't violate Roe, doesn't violate Casey, or these two should be overturned. And courts over here to say, no, this most decidedly violates it. They like it when there is that tension and they can take the case. If all of the lower courts are continually saying, no, this violates, no, this violates, no, this violates, that makes it much more hard for the and much more difficult for the Supreme Court to want to hear the case, because it also means that there really isn't a question of what the law says. Okay, so this law is not taking effect until January, but part of the confusion is there have been people calling clinics mm -hmm. and saying, you know, is this, can I come in for my appointment, that kind of thing. Still six months away, so predictions. What are we going to see in the next six months in terms of a legal battle? Well, as far as a legal battle goes, like I said, the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia and other groups are in the fact-finding phase of how they're going to file suit. They've said, see you in court, so there will be a lawsuit at some point before 
The law is set to take effect January 1st, 2020. In a non-lawsuit aside, expect to see reproductive rights, abortion rights, and other things as a major campaign issue here in Georgia, whether it's the state legislature or the U.S. Senate race coming up or the presidential race coming up, because there are a lot of people mobilized on this issue, feeling strongly one way or the other, that are taking political action and taking that momentum into the next Okay. What are you predicting for legal battles? Do, do thinking thinking of a particular tack that the ACLU could take? Um, so I think part of what's going to happen here, sort of as Tim was mentioning, that will be interesting to see is that while it is a single law that was passed by the legislature, the changes go to various parts of the code. And so I think one of the things that could be interesting is whether or not they in fact see it as having to almost challenge the various portions of it. And that's part of where the concern is, is whether or not you can even, because the the change, the personhood part of it is really distinct from the abortion part of it, right? That was a change to a part of the code and the ramifications of that. Uh, similarly, there were changes, not only we talked about um, sort of the child support portions. There's also changes about whether or not in your taxes. So one of the reasons why the law is actually not going into effect until January 1st, 2020, is that it also changes the Georgia tax code. And it says that if a woman is pregnant, she is able to now um, apply for the dependent child tax credit. Right, a deduction. A deduction that is on there. And so because of that, um, that then applies and sort of puts in there. And so those those, again, while they are part of abortion, they're also separate. And so I think one of the interesting questions might be how they approach that law and whether or not they're almost doing it as sort of two separate challenges, one that is really about this kind of personhood question and one that is about the abortion statute proper and kind of separating them out there. Okay. You know, we talked about some of the hypotheticals, some of the vagaries, the things that aren't quite understood about this law. Do you think lawmakers thought those through? I think that there are many times that legislators write a law with a certain purpose in mind, but what they don't necessarily think through are the ways in which changing what seems like even a very minor portion of the code can have ramifications that switch all the way through it. Um, I don't know that when they were really trying to put in the personhood thing that they were intending for it to now be that person was redefined all the way through the code. Mm-hmm. But was the design to have this case challenged and advanced to the Supreme Court. Most decidedly. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University, and GPB reporter Stephen Fowler, who's been covering HP 481 since it was introduced in the General Assembly. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. Thank you. What does it take to be National School Social Worker of the Year? We're going to find out with Terilyn Rivers-Cannon, who won that honor, and she hails from Booker T. Washington High in Atlanta. Stay with us for that conversation when On Second Thought continues.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, we are back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier this year, Macon Big County's Curtis Jones was named National School Superintendent of the Year. Now, another Georgia educator is at the top of her class. Maybe you could teach me how to speak, Terrilyn. (laughs) Terrilyn Rivers-Cannon works with students at Booker T. Washington High School and Fickett Elementary School in Atlanta. She's also president of the School Social Workers Association of Georgia, and now she's not only the 2019 National School Social Worker of the Year, but also the first Georgian and first African-American to win the national award. Well, now that summer is out, school is out for the summer, Tara Lynn Rivers-Cannon has time to join us in the studio. So welcome and first, congratulations. Thank you so much. And I greatly appreciate you having me here this morning. Well, I'd love to hear about what you do. What is it that makes the National School Social Worker of the Year? Why do you think, or why did the committee say you were singled out? Innovative thoughts, creative, and always trying my very best to be motivational and inspirational to my colleagues, doing all of those things and having Georgia as well as national platforms understand and know what school social workers actually do. Mm. So what were you doing when you found out you had the award nationally? Actually, I was driving home one evening and um, I heard the phone ring. And then I got to the light and I stopped and I looked for information and I said, wow, now this is really not real. So I immediately turned and pulled to the side because, of course, the Georgia parked. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I want to make that point very clear that I did turn and get off of the street uh, to read it a little bit more clearly. And one of the individuals who nominated me, Dr. Jacqueline Brown, who's on the executive board committee, along with another individual who nominated me, Pamela Jimerson, I said, this is not real. This is a mistake. Um, So Dr. Brown sent an email immediately to confirm, and she said, no, this is real. Oh, wow. So I was just still in awe, very much so, and I'm still in awe because it's such a humbling honor to have this award, it truly, truly is, and to represent your state and, as you shared, being the first. Because that portion of it, I had no idea that that was going to come with it until I actually got down to Orlando. Well, congratulations again. Uh, You didn't always want to be a social worker. What did you want to be when you were growing up? An attorney. Really? (laughs) So you are litigating things in your own way, I suppose, now. But how did you become interested in social work? I became interest in social work from my aunt, Katie Mae Tyndall, who was a social work professor. And uh, she would come home during the holidays and summers and always talk to me about talk to me about social work. And I would look at her and I'd say, no, that's not for me, as we were sitting in my grandmother's home in Savannah, Georgia. But it just intrigued me so just to see and listen to her not only speak with her students, but just the advocacy piece of it. And engaging in that and standing up for the rights of those who could not speak or have a voice for themselves, that empowerment piece is such a phenomenal piece of what we do as school social workers. Each year she came home. I was a junior in high school. I said, no, no. But my chair moved from the end of the table to right next to her. And her sharing with me, you need to learn the language, the jargon, the vernacular. And I'm just looking at her like, mm but here I am. Hmm. So what kind of language, what kind of jargon, what kind of things was she talking about were challenges for her? It was the advocacy piece, of course, and individuals- Advocating for kids or for, for people who were in need? Advocating for children. Yeah. 
um, because she advocated for her students, but more so throughout her career, she advocated for children and families as well. So that was a huge piece that really, you know, it really sunk in and really got to me very deeply, um, along with being a part of the organizations on the state level as well as the national level. That is so very imperative that you become a part of those organizations, because if we're not working together to have a voice with one another, then we can't expect individuals to turn the volume up, so to speak, to hear what it is that we truly have to say. Well, your aunt was an undergrad professor. Was she was she tough on you? Absolutely. I can recall when I finally graduated high school and then went to college, Voorhees College in Denmark, South Carolina, where she was actually a professor. And um, I thought taking her class was going to be a breeze. But quickly, very quickly, I found out that no, absolutely not. I was put in the very front of the class and having to do a presentation. And that let me know that this was my first and my very last time trying to get over in my aunt's class. <laughs> well, getting over is a natural thing that certainly kids want to do. It must be something that you face all the time. You know, they they haven't learned their limbic, their system, brain systems haven't worked fully formed. Let's say it's a kind of a bumpy road from the from the frontal lobe to the back of the brain for kids. So not always making the right kind of decisions. How do you encourage them in that on that bumpy road? I definitely listen to their stories and what they have to say. Um, being school social workers, we're never dismissive to what our children have to share. And that's what makes our profession so unique. Because we have the opportunity and that specific skill set to look at the child holistically. So that door, when that door is open and they first enter those classrooms or enter the doors of the school and those issues and concerns come up, we are able to look at everything that's going on. We know that issues that they're going through or pebbles in the rolls, as I like to call them, it's such so much more than the surface. So... And being in this role, it definitely provides us with that opportunity. And furthermore, it allows us an opportunity to share with our colleagues and administrators and teachers and all of those who are working within the school system, you know, the educational stakeholders. It allows us and affords us with that opportunity to share that information because not only are we working with a child, we're working with those individuals as well. And I say that because we provide training to them as well. So what kind of, uh, you had to go through your own educational process, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit, because you were a single mother at this time, managing two jobs while working on your degree once you decided that's what you wanted to do. How did you personally stay motivated and get over those little pebbles in the road? And and did you ever catch up on sleep? I caught up on sleep when I could, but my main focus was to get through school and finish. Um, you know, a lot of times when individuals see a young woman who's a teenage mother and there's always a preconception as to what's going on. So I would use that as my fuel and changing those can'ts into cans. And that's a statement that I so love because we cannot look at things and know that what you see on the surface is what the end result is going to be. And that's what I share with my students. Just because you started here doesn't mean that you have to finish there. Well, when you have so many students that you're dealing with, you and your colleagues, they're looking at, you know, thousands of kids in some schools, hundreds in others, and you're meeting them for the first time. How do you keep yourself from making that first judgment, from thinking, oh, teen mother, I, I know her story? And that is how I do it. Each day, I pray for humility, and I'm thankful for the blessings that I have been given and afforded to me. So therefore, 
it allows me to be in a position to say, this could be you or this could be your child. And that's how I go in each and every day doing school social work, knowing that this could possibly have been me. But someone provided me with an opportunity, which was my aunt and my family as well. But for me, a strong guiding force was her and the work that she did and listening to all of that. So each time a student or a family member comes into my office, I'm, that's the mindset that I have. Do you actually have time with them to develop those relationships? We do have time. And it's interesting that you would ask that question. Um, one of the things that we are working on is to try to get the student to school social work ratio down. Mm-hmm. Right now in the state of Georgia, it's one school social worker to 2475 students, mm-hmm. which is oh mind boggling. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I think about that number, I have to take a, a moment and breathe and reflect Because as I speak with my colleagues across the state of Georgia and on a national level when we come together, um, but specifically here in Georgia, we some of my colleagues have seven schools that they're covering. And to have seven schools as one school social worker, we definitely have to get those numbers down. Right. How can you possibly get to know people inside of that situation? We are doing the best that we can with that. we are looking at all cases, taking the view fully when we're doing that. We are buddying with our counterparts within the school system. But just to think about if our numbers could be decreased, how much more could we do on top of what it is that we're already doing? And that's why I'm so you know, humbled and, and glad to have the opportunity today to be able to share this information because I want each and every school social worker across the state of Georgia to know and understand that this is where we all need to be. We need to be working together as a team. Come on aboard and be a part. My guest is Tara Lynn Rivers-Cannon. She's recently named National School Social Worker of the Year. She's president of the School Social Workers Association of Georgia, and she works with kids at Washington High School and Fickett Elementary Schools in Atlanta. By the way, you started out as a medical social worker, right? I did. And so that was in Savannah. Did you have a, was there a light bulb moment or a gradual realization that you really wanted to work with kids? It, well, I've always wanted to work with children, but becoming a medical social worker Uh, That was not my first choice, but, you know, things kind of fall into place Mm -hmm. at the right moments and the right times. I was looking for a school social work position, but looking for school social work, it is a hard field to break into for one thing. So once you get there, you definitely want to lay a, a great foundation. But medical social work still ties into it because of all the issues that we face when we're looking at our children and trauma and understanding the medications and things like that that they're on, everything fell into place as it should. Mm -hmm. So those two are closely related. And now you've been with Atlanta Public Schools for more than a decade. What is that day-to-day experience for you and your colleagues and and how you're helping kids at Washington High School? Well, day to day, when I come in, I'm hoping to be able to check my emails to see what has transpired or occurred the day before. But that doesn't always happen. And it doesn't always happen because there are times when issues of concerns have occurred overnight. So that email checking turns into what can I do to assist? And let's see what's going on with this child or this family. We may come in and someone stops you at the door when you're arriving and say to you, I know that you just arrived, but I really need to share this information with you. Mm -hmm. So we walk that walk with them when we're 
faced with those issues of concern. So the kids who are going through difficulties can be seen, so to speak. Absolutely. As soon as they come in the door, you know, once that bell rings and they get settled down, we're addressing those issues immediately. Well, as the president of the School Social Workers Association of the state, how about around the state? What kind of challenges do students face? Like, are urban and rural problems alike? They are different, but alike. And when I say that, uh, when you are coming from urban you know, it, the variety is more and a bit wider when you're looking at the issues. Um, you're not always able to get to the meat of what's going on. And then, of course, when you're in those rural areas, it's almost like a taboo. Don't tell anybody about what's going on in our families. Mm -hmm. So you have to build up that security or safety net for your students. And that's what we do as school social workers. We want them to know that we are not here you know, knocking on doors for attendance. We are not here to take your child away or separate your family. That is far from what it is that we really want to do with the work that we're doing. So therefore, we're building and laying that foundation. A lot of the issues that my counterparts face, as well as myself, we're talking about mental health. And that is such a hot topic right now. Because when you really think about it overall in society today, everything ties into mental health. Mm. When we look at, you know, the human sex trafficking, we look at the homelessness, the bullying, all of those things are a percentage of trauma that that child goes through. And we are here as the leaders in that field to address those issues. Well, and now that the new mental health screening programs are been, have been signed into law by, uh, uh, by Governor Kemp, that could all change. But I'm wondering about, like, even the motivation. Social work is an exhausting job, obviously, Thank, often thankless for many people. And you talked about the high ratio of, of students to social workers, most of them earning less than $50,000 a year. That's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We got that figure from. Yet to be part of the profession, you have to have graduate degrees. So you're saddled with debt in many cases. Can you talk about that and some of the other challenges of being a social worker and what you think needs to happen to make it a more sustainable career path? I always say that we are called to do this. It's not by chance that we're in this field. So you definitely have to have a love for the profession in itself. A great thing that would help us, or if we're talking about equations and solutions, Getting that ratio down would, would definitely help us and retain more in the field, definitely. Um, you know, getting the well-deserved pay raises to have us positioned in the right way. Because as a school social worker, we are certified MSW degreed individuals. And you cannot come into the school system doing this work with less than that. So when we look at that, that is a lot of training that goes into the work that we do. Well, it's, uh, as you mentioned, alluded to, we, Governor Kemp campaigned on raising teacher pay in Georgia. And but when we spoke with the National School Superintendent of the Year, Curtis Jones, he said that that was a good first step. But teachers and social workers and other staff in Macon, as he were talking about, need more support. So as, as president of the School Social Workers Association of Georgia, what do you say to social workers in the state? What do they most need from our lawmakers? That ear to listen. Uh, we had an opportunity during my uh, first year to go and have a legislative day at the Capitol, which was very impactful. And although we started off with a small group, our voices were loud. And not speaking on the state 
Capitol State floor volume, just meaning loud to share what our views were. And we had the opportunity to have some of you know, our senators to come by and stop and share words. So we were right there on the South Wing in the center of the floor, and that provided such a great opportunity. At that time, we also had a resolution done that was read on the state floor. Now, this past year, we were provided with another opportunity to host that. Once again, our numbers were larger. So it's just pushing out that information and sharing to our legislators what we stand for. You not you don't need to look any further because you have a group of professionals, highly skilled and certified with unique skills that can provide all of those things. And being at the Capitol this past year, we did make great gains because there again, we had a resolution read at the Educational Subcommittee where Senator Renee Utterman read it for us. And then I had the opportunity to speak with them as well. So that was truly impactful. We're making the gains. We just have to continue on as to what we're doing and just getting those ears and letting them know that the volume is up. All right. And it's going to keep going up with National School Social Worker of the Year, Terrilyn Rivers Cannon. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. She works with students at Washington High School and Thicket Elementary Schools in Atlanta and, of course, with social workers across the state. Music for today's show from Brass Buttons by Nursery. We'll be back tomorrow with more of On Second Thought from GPB.